there. Here we are again, another discast. We're on a roll lately. I, I hope you enjoyed Michael Lind. He's an incredibly feckened brain. Someone very hard to really pigeonhole in any particular way. And lovely feedback from that. But today we have someone who is a little like Michael. I've known and followed and read now for 30 years, I guess it must be. And used to edit at the New Republic. He's Robert D. Kaplan, Bob Kaplan. He's a foreign affairs and travel journalist. For three decades, he reported for The Atlantic and wrote for many other publications, including the editorial pages of The New York Times and Washington Post. He's been all over the world, a whole bunch of hotspots at exactly the moments when you wouldn't want to go there. He holds the Robert Strauss Who Pay Chair in Geopolitics at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and is a senior advisor at Eurasia Group. And he is remarkably prolific. He has 21 books, including The Coming Anarchy, Balkan Ghosts, a book that had an impact upon Bill Clinton, which we will talk about, and Asia's Cauldron. His new book, which really intrigued me, is called The Tragic Mind, Fear, Fate, and the Burden of Power. Bob, welcome, tragically, to, <laughs> to the discast. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Tell me, and I usually ask this, where were you born and, 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 and who were your parents? Yes, I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in a working class family in, in Far Rockaway, Queens. My father was a truck driver for the New York Daily News, and my mother was a housewife. And I went to New York City public schools and I was a competitive swimmer and went to the University of Connecticut. I got in not because of my grades, but because of my swimming ability. And my grades were average, we'll say. And I got a great education at the University of Connecticut, an education you cannot get anymore because it was the great thinkers, the great Western thinkers, you know, great novelists introduced me to, you know, Thomas Mann, Henry Adams, and all that, people I had never heard of, Marcel Proust, I'd never heard of. And after college, I traveled through, I had the travel bug, and I traveled through communist East Europe. This was the early, mid-1970s, and I spent the whole summer in East Germany and Poland and what was then Czechoslovakia and on and on, ending in Bulgaria. And then after some more traveling, I, I ran out of money. I came home and I got a job at the Rutland, Vermont Daily Herald, where I worked for a year and a half covering everything from the governor's office to the state prison system. And then I had saved up enough money and went traveling again. And I spent quite a number of years in the Mediterranean area, in Eastern Europe as a freelance journalist, basically living out of youth hostels and cheap hotels, and gradually starting to write at the beginning for the New Republic, then for the Atlantic. I was married in Greece, our son was born in Greece, and my wife is Portuguese. We went to live in Portugal for a few years. And then we came back to the United States. And by then, I was doing regular pieces for The Atlantic, and I wrote my first book, which was 
on the Ethiopian famine of the mid-1980s. And, and that started it all, essentially. That's a, if I might say, it's almost a classic biography of someone who one might see as emerging from the elite in our, into the elite from our generation. In other words, a classic meritocratic story in many ways. I mean, not, not through testing or anything, but coming from humble backgrounds, getting out there, seeing the whole world, rising into this, into this, this rather, I don't know, we felt the same way as I did getting there. Suddenly you're sitting around the New Republic table and there are generals and, and politicians and prime ministers and, and intellectuals. And part of me in my 20s was like, Jesus, how did I get here? My mom and dad really wouldn't understand a word of what's happening in this room. Or, I mean, they would, but they wouldn't get it. But you, you also had this sort of insatiable appetite for reporting, actually going to see things. Yes. When you were in Eastern Europe, what was your... What, 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 I mean, and when you went to the Balkans, you came back with some pretty sober views of human nature and of... And of ethnic and tribal uh, interaction? Yes. Well, the first thing, Andrew, is when I first went to Eastern Europe, the news in the 1970s was all that this was a gray zone. They called them the satellite states of the Soviet Union. And they were mm -hmm. all the same. They were all gray, boring, repressed. And when I traveled through East Germany and Poland and down to Romania and Bulgaria, I found that was not the case at all that they were all vastly different from each other, that East Germany was like an occupied country, occupied by the Red Army. Poland and Hungary were relatively liberal. They had liberal forms of communism where people could talk the way they wanted, give out opinions. Czechoslovakia was very highly cultured, but very repressed politically. And whereas the Balkans, you know, with Romania and Bulgaria, which I was first exposed to, were just much poorer and, and non-Western. You know, you could see the Ottoman influence, even though at the time I didn't know what Ottoman was, you know, you know but I learned over time that, that communism in Poland or Hungary was like an extreme form of, of leftist liberal thought. Whereas communism in Romania and Bulgaria was like a, a sultanic occupying system, so to speak. It was much mm. different. So I got an appreciation for the differences, how different they all were. When, when I in other words, when you look from, when you're sitting in, when you're actually in Washington and you look at this map and you think of these regimes and you think communist and you see this big gray block, it takes actually going to a place spending some time there, especially not just a quickie, to realize that, in fact, from the ground up, it's an extraordinarily different experience. That's what journalism is supposed to give us, right? It's what yeah. journalism is supposed to Jur provide. Journalism is about nuances. You know, foreign correspondents are great at nuances. They know it's not all democracies versus dictatorships. There are a lot of democracies that don't work very well. And there are some dictatorships that actually have, free, you know, free speech and allow people a decent quality of life. It's, you know, it's about the, the nuances in the gray shades. It's not black and white. The compare the East Germans with the Poles in that period. I'm just trying to think because I'm 
one of the interesting things about our our talks about regime and regime change and all that is that we kind of expect that people living in under a certain regime will be happier than another regime. And I'm sure that is broadly speaking true, but it must be more complicated than that as well on the ground. Yeah. What well, how are the how are people feeling in East Germany and in, and in Poland? How what what differences were there? Well, what I found, remember, I was young. I was 20, 21. And so I met young people at East German youth hostels where I stayed. And the East German young people were, they were like young people everywhere. They wanted to meet me. They thought I was fascinating because I came from the West. I found that the more repressive the system, the, the richer the personal lives are, because it's the only way to express yourself. Families, friendships, lovers were all richer in an oppressed communist system. And this comes out in Milan Kundera's the, the Book of Laughter and Forgetting and some of his other books as well. He goes into this, the richness of the personal life. East Germany was totally repressed because remember, Germany was the enemy defeated state in World War II, and the Cold War was an ex a, a tailpipe extension of World War II. And you just saw, you saw Soviet Red Army soldiers everywhere in East Germany. Poland was radically different. Poland was people, you know, openly disparaged the regime. They didn't like communism, but neither were they willing to revolt, so to speak. And there was just a lot more freedom in Poland. In East Germany, you also had the Stasi. You had this extraordinary culture of inform informants everywhere. Yes. And, and yeah. the terror of having a, an open and free personal life. But that's interesting, isn't it? Because we, if there's no public life, then everything is everything real is kind of shunted into the personal, I suppose. Exactly. And your energies and your, your aspirations are in that personal. But that's another, and I think one of the themes of this book about tragedy is that Nothing is quite as simple as it appears. That, that even under some horrible regimes, there are some weird, positive aspects to them in some aspects of people's lives. Yeah. No, exactly. And as again, each place was very different. Yugoslavia, which I also traveled to, but not in that original trip, was also very different because there was more freedom in Yugoslavia than almost anywhere because. Tito's communism was still communism. It was still oppressive. There was still the secret police, all of that. But it was geared to keeping down the nationalists in, in, you know, in the Serbian Republic, the Croatian Republic of Yugoslavia, etc. And so there was a, a, a greater degree of freedom in Yugoslavia than anywhere. I think what people missed was that when the wall came down or in the months before the Berlin Wall came down, there was this vertical push upward in all the, the satellite states, Poland, Hungary, they wanted down with communism, so to speak. It, you know, they were liberated in a vertical direction from the ground up. But in Yugoslavia, it was like in a horizontal lateral direction. It meant freedom for the individual republics in Yugoslavia. And that brought them back to historical grievances that were unsettled from the Civil War during World War II. So whereas you got straightforward cries for freedom in every place else, in Yugoslavia, you got a, it was more complex. There was a call to be a Serb, a call to be a Croat, all of that. 
what was, I think, probably the most important thing that happened to our generation, I mean, the most formative event was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, which our childhoods were kind of premised upon, even our oh, yeah. adolescence. Uh, Absolutely. And if one is talking, and and I one of, one of the things that I'm trying to understand the last 30 years and the tragedy of it in some ways, because I, I do think there is some tragedy of it. It, it. It's a class. Let me let me. It's a kind of classic tale of of well meant hubris. In other words, what happened was that psychologically we won this miraculously suddenly, and the euphoria that came of that in the '90s, and then the ability for us to intervene in somewhere like the Balkans and actually achieve a decent result. Yes, the Persian Gulf War, which H. W. Bush prosecuted very well, seemed that a, an international presence of the United States, a vast army actually was taken over to Saudi Arabia in that, I mean, huge, much bigger than anything that ever ended up in Iraq. And we just began to believe our own, we began to huff our own fumes, as it were. We began to yeah. believe we could do no wrong. I remember very distinctly having, this is one of the this little conversation, and all of which were good. I mean, let's just point this out. All these developments were wonderful developments for humankind. And I remember there was a moment around the beginning of the war when I voiced some concerns. And a friend of mine just said, the US military can do anything. Look at what it's done lately. It can do anything. Don't worry about this. And of course, that made me worry about it. But that, that arc in which we're doing good, actually, we're trying to do good, but ending up in Iraq and Afghanistan perpetrating unbelievable horrors. That's the tragic arc, is it not? Yeah, it is. Remember, it wasn't just that the U.S. military could do anything. There was the victory in the Cold War. There was Panama, Operation Just Cause, which was a success. There were the Balkan interventions, which were a success. There was the liberation of Kuwait was a success. So people assume that this is how it works, essentially you know, that it would always be a success, essentially. It was rote thinking, which I think all of us or many of us fell into. And also the Cold War ending was really miraculous because throughout my childhood and, early, and teenage years, it had seemed the Cold War was the end of history. It would go on forever, is what I meant. That there was no ending to the Cold War. That's just the way it was so to speak. And when it suddenly decisively ended with victory for one side and defeat for the other, and then all these successful interventions built up to the point where we had lost the sense of the tragic, the same way that in the run-up to World War I in Europe, remember Europe between the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the outbreak of war, World War I was relatively peaceful. I say relatively, because there were some small wars, but Europeans had lost the sense of the tragic, and they couldn't imagine a new war lasting more than a few weeks or a few months. They were also riding a wave of new technology, of economic growth, in the, in the way that in the 90s, we too, as a, as a country, seemed to be riding a wave of new technological skills. Let's, let's focus on this word tragic and tragedy, because it's the central thesis of the book. 
some people, I think, would naively think of tragedy as like, oh, some really bad shit happened to someone. That's not. Yeah, that's, that's because yeah. It's terrible. Yeah, <laughs> that's a sort of Alanis Morissette <laughs> understanding of tragedy. I mean, she misunderstood irony, but anyway, uh, tell me how you understand tragedy, both in the Greek and in the Shakespearean sense. Tragedy is not common misfortune. Common misfortune is the rule of life. If we live long enough, bad things will happen to us in our career, in our personal relationships, death of parents, sickness. That is not what the Greeks meant by, by tragedy, and it's not what I mean by tragedy in this book. Tragedy is comprehension. It's, it's realizing the mistake you made and the limits of what you can do when it's too late to affect the outcome. You know, that's kind of, it, tragedy is like the battle between, not between good and evil, but between one good and another good. Choosing one of the two causes some suffering somewhere. In other words, it's dealing with incompatible options. You can't choose all options. And even if you do good, someone is still going to suffer. Yeah, and the Greeks thought of this as tragedy. Hegel thought of this as tragedy because it showed that the world was imperfect, that the world itself there was something wrong with, um, so to speak. So I've largely written evil out of this book. There's very little evil in this book. Yeah, because that would be more helpfully clarifying, wouldn't it? It's, it's, yes, yes. We would know where we were if we had a simple presentation of evil, which we very rarely do. But let's say there are two, what you think are good options, or possibly they're well-intended options. Both, if you pursue one, people will suffer from the other perspective. If you pursue the other, they'll be suffering that other. But you still have to make a choice. If the end result is that you have a, a, a sort of lesser painful result, fewer casualties, fewer disasters one way than another, and you pick the right one, even though it's going to lead to harm, you've done right. It's not tragic. Is it picking the wrong one or yeah, um, picking the right one? There are different ways tragic? to fail, and some ways of failing are better than others, essentially. It's, it, you know, it's like there's, you know, it, it, leaders are frequently in no-win situations where whatever they decide, someone's going to suffer and it's going to, and it's going to look bad. That's why I hold up not an obviously great president like FDR or Lincoln, but I hold up H.W. Bush as sort of an avatar not because of what happened in his administration, but, with, but because of what did not happen, what he averted from happening. In other words, he did not go on to Baghdad. He did not do a victory lap throughout Eastern Europe when all the communist regimes were falling. He stayed silent because he was terrified of a Soviet military response, and none came. That's one of the good things that didn't happen. He did not break diplomatic relations with China after Tiananmen. He lowered them. He downgraded them, but he did not break them as many intellectuals were demanding because he knew that the, you know, that world stability depended on a, you know, on a businesslike relationship between the U.S. and China even then. 
even back then. So it was what did not happen because he chose the lesser of evils, so to speak. And that's what made his presidency not great, but very competent in foreign affairs. Why wouldn't it make him great? It seems well, to me that the logic of your argument is that is greatness. The, the, and, the, and, and his was not a tragic presidency. I think what, what you say in the book is that it was because he intuitively grasped the tragedy of human affairs that yeah. he was aware of the catastrophes that lay and therefore took a much more cautious path. It reminds me of Biden's attempt right now to kind of calibrate a response to Russia that is not over the top, but is, but is not also. He's, he's in a classic situation in which uh, there are two options in front of him, and he is currently attempting to, to sort of juggle them in a way or keep them in healthy tension. But again, when you, when you ask yourself, does Biden, and Biden, I, I get the sense that a bit like H.W., he does have a sense of the tragic. I mean, he did experience, I think, the Afghanistan experience as, as a tragic. There's a lot I can say to all yeah, of we'll this. Say, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then please Yeah, you say can it. say that H.W. Bush was a great president. You know, that's fine. But one thing is clear. He was no intellectual. He didn't read Greek tragedy, but he was a genuine war hero. You know, he had experienced World War II very viscerally. He knew how bad war was because he had experienced it. Same as Harry Truman knew who, how bad war was because he fought in World War I. So he had, you know, so, so he had the psychological makeup um, essentially for that. I agree with you. I think Biden, though he's getting attacked from both sides, has so far, and I emphasize so far, handled the Ukraine challenge rather well. You know, they've poured tens of billions of dollars into weaponry in Ukraine. This is the greatest show of American power, of effective American power since HW's liberation of Kuwait in 1991. And it's happened without one American troop being, being threatened. Now, you know, you know, he's you know, he's thinking perhaps tragically about the fact that the war could widen to the NATO countries, that there could be use of WMD, not just nuclear weapons, but chemical, biological, all, you know, all of that. They're trying to limit this war to prevent it from becoming World War Three and all that. So and of course, with that approach, you satisfy nobody at the time. You know, because, you know, you have the, the war party, which wants to send everything immediately to Ukraine now, which carries its dangers. And then you have the neo-isolationists who don't want to do anything, essentially, or the Asia firsters, you know, essentially, this is diverting us from Asia. But I think that Biden does have a trace of the HW tragic thinking. It comes differently from him. H.W., it came from the war and the Cold War. Biden, I think it comes just with age. He's been around Washington so many decades that he's seen people fail. He's seen disasters happen time and time again. So he just has a sensibility about this. But I think... And he's, and he, he's been, as a, as a member of the executive branch, bullshitted repeatedly by the military in ways that he hasn't forgotten. And that's partly why he was able to say to the, to the military, we're getting out of Afghanistan, whether they 
messed up the exit or whatever. But nonetheless, the ability of him was an ability that Obama did not have yeah. to look um, the military in the face and say, you're done. And he, he didn't feel he had the capacity. Now, maybe it was the timing. Maybe, maybe it was different. But So what you're saying really is that having a tragic mind avoids confronting terrible, tragic situations. Yeah. First of all, I think Afghanistan, the, the, the tr abject failure of the Afghan withdrawal actually helped the administration in Ukraine because, it, you know, it was a come to Jesus moment. We've got to get our act together. We have to coordinate better between CIA and state and defense and all of that. And it also gave Putin the false sensibility that the West was done. You know, so I think Afghan, you know, when historians write about this, Af the Afghan withdrawal is going to have a very ironic effect on what happened in Ukraine. Your question. Hmm. Well, I, wa I want to I want to take you forward to your actual experience, visceral, personal experience of the failure of your intellectual argument in defense of the war in Iraq, your moral argument, because at the center of this book really is your confronting the choices that were placed before us, the removal of a really hideous tyrant, someone almost uniquely evil in that, in that part of the world for a very long time, and the possibility that removing him could lead to something worse, that anarchy itself and, and chaos would be worse. So there you are. You know this in your head. You've made the decision intellectually beforehand that you supported this war to get rid of this evil because you you've been in Iraq before, right? You knew. Oh, I've been there. Wait, under, I, I under visited Sudan. Iraq in the 1980s several times, and you know it's easy to argue about any and chaos. The great philosophers have done it for thousands of years, but to actually experience it and learn about it firsthand is life changing. Iraq was never an abstraction to me. It was always a real place with dusty streets that I knew Baghdad rather well, etc. And the, my trips to Baghdad in the 80s, I said to myself, what could be worse than this? Nothing could be worse than this. This is not Arab because it's much more oppressive than the fellow Ba'athist regime in Syria next door, which I also knew from, from reporting trips. The only thing I could compare Saddam to was Ceausescu's Romania, which which I also knew. Mm. You know, this was like Stalin. And what, what distinguishes... when? When you're on the streets, how do you figure this out? How do you sense that that the tyranny of Saddam is greater than Assad? Nobody smiles. Everyone looks down. On every vertical surface, there's a big picture of him, essentially. And the diplomats, when you go for off-the-record briefings at Western embassies, they say it don't, you know, don't change any money on the black market, don't do anything suspicious, because if the regime gets it in your head, in their head that there's something wrong with you, there's nothing any of us could do about it. It was like the diplomats themselves were hostages to the regime as well. You didn't get those kind of lectures in Syria, you know, you know. Or, or places. You got them in Iraq. And then, you know, the Iran-Iraq war, which Saddam instigated, killed hundreds of thousands of soldiers on both sides. But even accepting the Iran-Iraq war, Saddam was guilty of killing hundreds of thousands of people. You know, there was the Anfal campaign against Kurdish women and children. So I said to myself, what can be worse than this? 
And that's where I was wrong, because I went back to Iraq as an embedded journalist in Al-Anbar and Fallujah in 2004, again in 2005, and I saw what was worse than that. And that was absolute chaos, which the U.S. military could not control ultimately. What is that chaos like day to day in a in a place like Fallujah? What, how do you best convey that to 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 humans who have not ever known that level of anarchy? Andrew, this is the ultimate question because the Greeks remember had the god Dionysus, Dionysus. Who was, who, was, who was the god of many things, but one of the things of chaos. And the Greeks feared him and celebrated him because the Greeks were too rational not to admit the irrationality on the other side of, of being rational. And see, journalists, intellectuals in the West, they go on and on about authoritarianism and dictatorship. Dictators are always in the news. So they think authoritarianism is the worst thing in the world because they've experienced it, if secondhand. Whereas chaos, very few of them have actually experienced. Foreign correspondents have experienced it in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Latin America. And I experienced it in Africa and Iraq and various places. It's nobody is in control. Absolutely nobody is in control. I, you know, I was interviewed by a German correspondent who was in Baghdad after Saddam fell. And he ran and he went with a massive crowd to the former foreign minister Tarek Aziz's house and they looted it. And he said it was the most frightening thing he had ever experienced because they were smashing everything, breaking everything, crowds, just fights breaking out, and there was no police, no order anywhere to be seen. To be, you know, you know, to travel in the countryside of certain certain African countries and to be stopped by soldiers who were drunk, who had the safeties on their rifles off, and were demanding bribes to go forward because the, the because the writ of the central government no longer extended beyond the capital city and its environs. That's much worse than, you know, than an extreme order. And in 2005, when I went back to Iraq, to Mosul, and I asked people, I went door to door, and they all said that as bad as Saddam was, it wasn't as bad as this. They themselves said that. Yes, because the fear of a knowing thing is somewhat more reliable than the fear of utterly unknown things. Right. They could come the, at you from any direction at any time. Because the fear of a known thing you could make plans about, you can order your life around, as dangerous as it was. Whereas the fear of the absolute unknown, where anyone can break into your house, steal anything, you know, and there's just no police, there's nothing, there's no order. And, you know, this is why Hobbes wrote the Leviathan, you know, to establish, you know, yeah, Hobbes me, not, it's amazing the, the, the name Thomas Hobbes is not in this book because Hobbes, of course, was motivated in part by experiencing the English Civil War. Exactly. Which, which for the first time tore apart families, even though in the context of, Euro, of some European civil wars, it was not that bloody to, to a great extent. It nonetheless destabilized a society. England's, I think, great advantage since Anglo-Saxon times was it always had a very strong central authority. Even the Anglo-Saxons actually controlled most of their territory, really did. And I, I, I think it's, 
I think I, I do think is a huge failure of imagination of the elites, many of us in the elites, not to fully understand what chaos means. That's why I, because chaos means not, a, the, 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 chaos is dynamic too. It spreads itself. The fewer people you can trust, the fewer people you will trust, the more you will feel you have to betray trust. The more this thing just spins out of control. That's Actually, why I, find I think I did mention tolerating rioting. Yeah. You did mention I, him? I, 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 I think in passing, it. but I've written about Hobbes elsewhere. You know, oh, Hobbes know. is called pessimistic, but he really wasn't because he thought his Leviathan was a solution that would bring order, state building, you know, building roads, you know, you know, releasing people from, from this servitude of chaos. Yeah, and he was right. <laughs> yeah. it, did, it did work to some extent. And, and, you know, as long as you then place limits on it, but that is the priority. You establish order first, then you, then you protect yourself against overweening concentration of power, which is what, what the Americans, Americans. Exactly. They, as as I write in the book, sort of, the founding fathers wanted order above all, but then immediately went about making order, you know, less and less coercive. And that's in part what the Federalist Papers are about, you know, how to make order, how to make sure that there's order, but making it as less coercive as possible. A huge amount of your book is about the Greek stories of, of, of tragedy and how they really pioneered and deeply understood this element of human, humanity. And one of the points you make about the, the founders' wisdom was how deeply immersed they had been in the ancient Greeks. I mean, the, the, that, those concepts, those stories were very familiar to them. They're not familiar to us at all. What, what is it about the Greek understanding of tragedy that we fail to grasp today? There was a great American classicist of the early and mid-20th century, Edith Hamilton, who wrote a famous book on mythology, which all American school children read it, you know, when I grew up. And Edith Hamilton said that the Greeks understood that the world was imperfect. There was something irremediably wrong with the world. And at the same time, it was beautiful. The world was beautiful. And that is the hearth, you know, you know, you know, you know, that's really the fundamental point of Greek tragedy, that there is no solution for many things. There's heartbreaking, you know, events that happen, but yet you still have to celebrate the beauty of the world. The Greeks could live with contradictions. The Greeks feared chaos. They valued order above all. They realized there was this contradiction between loyalty to the family and loyalty to the state or to the order. They realized that the worst choices, the worst thing to be is a tribal leader like Agamemnon. He has to make a decision between, you know, sacrificing, slaughtering his daughter or leading his army to victory in Troy. You know, you know, no matter what he decides, it's and that that in that particular instance, it's the, in that yeah, in that particular instance, he's actually saved that decision, right? Because his daughter volunteers. Exactly, and of course, this is getting into nuances. But there's there's one ending of the play where she 
transforms into into an animal and flies off and is not sacrificed. But most people, most experts agree that was not written by Euripides. That was added later and is like a false ending. The false ending is that she is sacrificed. I mean, the true ending is that, as Euripides meant it, is that she was sacrificed. Yeah, which is the difference—a difference also between the biblical sacrifice of a son, in which in which God comes in at the last minute and says, "Psych, Abraham and Isaac." I'm talking about that moment yeah. when he has to has to he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, uh, but of course, then Christianity is built upon the tragic sense that it's through the death of Jesus that there is some kind of resolution, and and within Christianity as well as the Greeks. There is this sense that there will be no heaven on earth and that understanding the distinction between those two worlds and the impossibility of perfection here is the beginning of wisdom. That's Augustine, right? I mean, so, yes. so there's a Christian understanding of tragedy as well. There uh, is. Or there's there the is. broader sense. There's a broader sense in how I'd like you to kind of distinguish this. Everything is tragic. I mean, everything we do even when it's successful, as soon as it is successful, it's done. It's over. We have to do something again, something else. Everything ends. Enoch Powell, the famous reactionary British politician, once said, every political career ends in failure. Everyone. Yeah. Because the problems change. The world moves on. And that sense of one's own insignificance, essentially, or that one is just mitigating the worst. Uh, that's a very deep sense in the human spirit. It's, it's not, I have to say, understandably so, that common in America. Why would no, Americans no. feel that way? They, 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 they escaped and everything, they have a, a land of infinite resources. It, it's absolutely true because America, America is great, not because of the innate character of its people, but I would argue because of the gift of geography. Not only does it have two oceans on each side protecting them and gives them a great navy, but it has the longest inland waterway system of any other place in the world that allowed for transport internally and an economy of scale to develop in the 19th century, you know, creating a great nation and economy of scale. You know, Americans don't realize how fortunate they are. You know, also when World War II ended, America was the only major industrial country that didn't have its infrastructure destroyed by the war, which gave it, you know, decades of an advantage that didn't peter out till the 70s and 80s. And and so American, it's much more harder to explain this to Americans than it is, than it is, you know, than it than it is to the others. You know, the Greeks and, and, and the most the Greeks are really at their most Greek in Sophocles' play Oedipus the King. Because here's Oedipus. He's brilliant, he's handsome, he's wealthy, he's lived a very successful life, no mistakes. And then within the space of 24 hours, he's destroyed. You know, he finds out, however unwittingly, that he killed his father, he married his mother, and on and on. And he blinds himself, and he's led off by his daughter, Antigone, and they wander to Colonus outside Athens. And in, in Maurice Bora's 
rendition of this. Maurice Burrow was a great Oxford scholar who died in 1970, a great classicist. Maurice Burrow said that that it's it's in you know the very tragedy of Oedipus, his very reduction to a poor blind pauper, and his and his acceptance of his new situation that he finds greatness. Essentially, there's a sense of greatness in 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 the last play, Oedipus at Colonus. Essentially, so you know the Greeks are saying essentially anyone who is arrogant is an idiot because you know because anything can befall any of us on any given day, as successful and however charmed our lives are. That's the I remember the the the, the maybe it's a parenthesis or. But apocryphal bit of someone once said there were three core truths within Buddhism. And the first is everything changes. The second is anything can happen at any time. And the third is I am not exempt. And I think that third one is the one that Americans have a hard time yeah. grappling yeah. with. Tragedy is let me let me suggest let me let me counter you on, on one point. One president in our lifetimes seemed to have unbounded optimism, not a tragic nuance in his, in his mind, who, 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 who in the end helped rally the West to defeat the Soviet Union. I'm talking about Reagan. Yeah. A man whose, whose sense of tragedy was a, kind of hard to decide, just divine. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and yet, and Yet, of course, I do think there is an element of distortion of Reagan's record. I, I think you can go back and look and look at Reagan and see quite a lot of realism in that foreign policy. It seems to me that, that this would be a major criticism of your analysis, because here we have a man with no sense of a tragic, tragic mind who nonetheless pursued what was quite aggressive at times and optimistic foreign policy and by all measurable accounts succeeded very well. Yes. Um, where do you put Reagan in your, in your, in your schemata? How do, where does he put? Yeah. R Reagan knew in foreign policy, Reagan knew one thing that turned out to be the right thing to know at the right moment in history, which was that communism could be defeated. The cold war would not go on forever, but Reagan actually was quite pragmatic. He was very worried about, he was extremely worried and despondent in November 1983 when the Soviets demanded we not deploy Pershing missiles and Pershing II missiles in Europe. And there were massive street demonstrations throughout Europe with many millions of people calling America a warmonger and all this. And Reagan insisted on deploying the weapons. And he did, and that broke the Soviet Union. They realized they had no solution to Reagan. And that led to the election of Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, in a year and a half later. So Reagan was quite tough and pragmatic. He may not have had the sense of the tragic is so much, but, um, you know, he was clearly a great leader. He, you know, he's very well-timed, but I would argue that it was Kissinger and Nixon's 
very tragic pragmatism, balance against, you know, move closer to China to balance against Russia, then have a detente with Russia, and on and on and on, that gave Reagan the luxury of his Wilsonianism later on. That it was, you know, that the moment <laughs> Reagan took power, he was in a strong position because of all the tragic deals and compromises that the Nixon and Ford administrations made. And in fact, to give Jimmy Carter some credit, in his last year in office, he started what would later be called the Reagan arms buildup, but it was actually started by Jimmy Carter. So, you know, if you look at the continuity of things, obviously, you know, my idea of tragedy doesn't work in every case all the time. But I think when you look at the, at the continuity of it, it's there. You know who I think had or has a tragic mind or and whose mind became more tragic in office is, is Barack Obama. Of all the, the, the presidents whom I can see as seeing two different goods, someone who was kind of obsessed with Niebuhr for a while there, too. Yeah, I think, for example, let's take his decision not to intervene in Syria. Yeah. Even after a kind of drawing a red line about the use of chemical weapons. Obviously, there's no, there are two, there, there are two decisions there. You know, both could go dramatically wrong. And by not intervening in Syria, there's no question, it seems to me, that, that we had this extraordinary Syrian exodus. We had which destabilized much of Europe and, and, and whose effects has, has, has yet to be fully understood in terms of what it did to European populism. Obviously, huge numbers of death in the ensuing civil war. But he thought better than dragging the United States into another endless Fallujah-style situation in the streets of, 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 of the cities of, 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 of Syria. Yes. See, I have an opinion about Syria, which is by the time Obama made this decision, Syria was lost. You know, there weren't a few militia groups. There were dozens upon dozens of them. And all these ideas from non-military people like cratering the runways and doing all this, when you actually got down to it, were bad ideas. So had we intervened in Syria, we may have had another Iraq. You know, so, oh, but, you know, he was probably wrong in drawing a red line on use of chemical weapons that made the U.S. look weak when they crossed the red line. and We didn't do anything. But not intervening in Syria, I think, was a classic case of the lesser of two evils as far as U.S. foreign policy was concerned. I think Obama's mistake was, remember, he followed George W. Bush. And because he followed George W. Bush, the failure of Iraq was red hot in everyone's minds. And so Obama was determined not to do, as he put it, stupid things. I think he overplayed this. You know, he overcompensated is what I mean to say. He let the, the, the Russians get away with murder in Ukraine. He let the Chinese get away with murder in building islands in the South China Sea when Obama was president. You know, it was this overcompensation to be the opposite of George W. Bush that I think makes Obama look somewhat weak in retrospect. And I think that, and I think Biden learned this. You know, Biden, again, to get back to Biden for a second, has had a very calibrated response to Ukraine, which is 
done a lot of good, but which has its dangers and and is and, and seems to be you know is somewhat consciously tragic. Would you describe Zionism as tragic? Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>